Pages notes. We won't probably do all nine tonight, but we'll we'll pick up on uh, page sixty-four here shortly. How you doing, Paul? Good, thanks. Well, we'll go ahead and get started. I know there'll be folks that'll still be trickling in. There's a new handout back in the last row there if you need the handout. And uh, I'll get. That's right. That's right. It's not that kind of handout, unfortunately. Um, maybe I should be specific. The new set of notes, right? Well, it's good to see everybody here. I uh, hope everyone had an enjoyable uh, Thanksgiving. I know that when you're talking in a room this large with this many people, there's undoubtedly. Uh, difficult things going on in our lives too, whether it's personally or in our families. But still, in Christ, we have a lot to be thankful for, don't we? And uh, that's one of been what's been one of the enjoyable parts for me going through the Book of Romans again with you is we've thought pretty deeply about many of the mercies that God has showed to us in Christ. And so I hope you are are thankful for those things. Uh, we are going to get started here on page 64. Let me just open in a word of prayer. Father, I am thankful to be here tonight. I'm grateful that you've spoken to us. I am thankful for uh, the break and the holiday season that we just had. And I'm thankful for this class moving forward and what we can still accomplish through your grace. I pray that you'd help us to think very carefully about what you said through your prophet Paul and that you would use it to make us more like your son. And we ask for this help in his name. Amen. All right, so we're going to move into our last big section of the Epistle to the Romans, uh, chapter 12 through chapter 15, one last large section. And then there's going to be a conclusion where he sends greetings back and forth. So thinking about this shift that takes place from what we've been talking about to this new section, I think, as I say there in the notes, it would be a mistake if we thought of this as just a, a tag-along or an addition or an addendum or something that's not directly tied to what Paul has been talking about. This is directly tied to the gospel message. Uh, the, the transformation, the change in our lives that Paul's going to talk about here, that he describes beginning in chapter 12, it was the goal of Jesus coming for us in the first place. So thinking about how uh, Matthew's gospel begins, this is a passage that we'll probably hear once or twice during the Christmas season. Remember the angel appears to Joseph in Matthew chapter 1, 
and he says, um, you are to give him the name Jesus, or it's, it's Joshua, right? It's the famous Old Testament name that means the Lord saves. And why are you supposed to give him that name, the angel says? Because he will save his people from their sins. Not just from the penalty of their sins, but also from their sins. The goal of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, is that we're actually going to have our sins removed. And that process, even though it's definitely not completed for any of us tonight, it's in the process of being completed if we, if we know Christ, if we're united with Him. And that's what this message that he's going to describe in chapter 12 entails. It's also directed, directly connected, I think, to one of his main purposes in writing the letter. So when we get to, uh, especially chapter 14, when he starts talking about the weak and the strong, it becomes pretty clear that a lot of the stuff that he's been saying about how we were all in the same boat of sin and how we were all rescued through the same method, which is Christ, it has very uh, deep implications for how we live together then inside of the church. So before we start looking at the details, just to remind ourselves of the fact that I think Paul always intended his letters to be read by multiple churches. Maybe something we don't think about often, but we have a little bit of a hint of that in Colossians chapter 4 in this passage. He gets to the end of the letter that he's writing to the little church in Colossae that he's never personally been to. These aren't people he knows. And he says, oh, by the way, I want after this letter has been read to you, see that it is also read in the church of the Laodiceans and that you in turn read the letter from Laodicea. So these two churches are supposed to, to swap letters. I was actually reading just this week uh, a book where the gentleman was discussing Paul and his letter writing. And he was pointing out that as far as we know, in the ancient world, if someone was going to write an important letter, like the epistles would have been important letters, it would have been very common for them not only to have a secretary who was writing the letter for them, and we know Paul does that because Paul will sometimes name them, but that sometimes you'd also have friends giving feedback, maybe seeing revisions, talking and discussing. You might even have an initial group of people that heard it read before it was sent out. So Paul, remember we said, is in Corinth and he's writing to Rome. But I think it's reasonable to think that the people in Corinth heard the letter. And when they go to collect these letters to form our Bibles, bind them all together, they probably didn't have to go to each individual church and hunt down for the letter that Paul originally sent them. There were, there were copies made from the get-go. There were people who heard this read. So why am I bringing this up? Because I think sometimes when we read the epistles, you have this weird feeling like you're reading somebody else's mail, <laughs> like you're snooping over Paul's shoulder and reading something that wasn't directly to you. But that's not the case. I think Paul himself knew that lots of Christians in different places would be reading what he said to each one of the churches. And all the while, as Paul is doing this, and even if he's got friends and other people in Corinth that are participating and giving advice and giving suggestions, God, through the Holy Spirit, is superintending the whole process so that what he says to those churches in Rome is still absolutely relevant for us 
uh, 2,000 years later here in Trenton, Michigan. All right, so he's going to start out here. Let me put the first little opening paragraph argument up here with this transition in verse 1. So let me just read verse 1 for us. So Romans chapter 12, verse 1, he says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. So those little conjunctions or those little introductory words, you know, we've said often they're, they're kind of important to help us keep with the flow of Paul's argument. So when he starts out saying, therefore, you can see that he's connecting it back to all the things that he's previously said in chapters 1 through 11. And we'll review those in a moment, but just keep that in mind. His, his main exhortation here, I call it an exhortation up here on the slide, and then I tripped up and then I called it a command in my next line, so I wasn't being super careful. It's, it's not quite as strong as a command. You know, Paul's not bossing them around, but it's a little stronger than just a wish or a request. It's somewhere in the middle. It's a polite exhortation. It's an exhortation with some urgency. He, he really does believe that we as Christians, based on what we've just been reading about in the previous uh, chapters, should do what he's telling us to do. And what is he telling us to do? We're supposed to be offering our bodies as a sacrifice. So at the bottom of the page there, I say the Christian's service to God takes the place of the sacrifices offered in the Old Testament as expressions of thanks, not sin offerings to God. So the sin offerings obviously have been uh, replaced by the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus Christ, but the sin offerings weren't the only kind of offerings that were offered in the Old Testament. They would also bring expressions of thanks to God for what He's done. We no longer do that. Even if we wanted to, we don't have a temple to do it in, right? And obviously these first Christians, even though the temple was still standing in Jerusalem, they're, they're separated from a great distance. But Paul's saying to them, and it applies to all of us, that if we want to show our thanks to God for everything that He's done for us, the way we can do that is not by going to Jerusalem with a sacrifice, but offering our whole self, our very self to God as an expression of thanks. What's his basis for this appeal? Well, it's not even really a basis. He actually chooses an unusual word. So if you flip the page to page 65, there in our NIV, it says, in view of God's mercy. So he could have said, I want you to do this because of God's mercy. That would be the more normal way for us to say that in English, and he has a normal way in his language to say that. You know, when I was young, you know, my, my father, he'd tell me to do something, and then sometimes if I wasn't thinking, I would say, why? And he would say, because I said so, right? Because I said so. And then when he said that, I knew that that was it. I wasn't supposed to ask any more questions, right? Because was the reason. It was the basis. This type of language happens frequently in the New Testament, but that's not what the Apostle Paul says here. He actually uses a different preposition instead of because, 
And it has more the idea that these things, these, this mercy itself, is making the appeal. So basically what Paul is saying, if I can put it this way, is I'm not asking you to do this. God in his mercies is asking you to do this. It's God asking you to do this. He says similar things in other passages. So if we see how he uses the same expression other places, sometimes that helps us understand it better. So in Romans chapter 15, verse 30, just a little bit later in his scroll, he's going to say, I urge you, brothers and sisters, by our Lord Jesus Christ. So there's the same expression, but it's by in English. By our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to join me in my struggle by praying to God for me. So he, Paul really wants them to be praying for him. It, it really matters deeply to Paul that there's Christians all over the world praying for them. It's, he brings this up regularly in his letters. And why are they supposed to pray? Well, he urges them through or by means of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of the Spirit. Or in 1 Corinthians 1.10, he says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the same expression there. Now it's, it's through the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that all of you agree with one another in what you say and that there be no divisions among you and that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. So this is a common problem throughout the churches in the first century, and it's still a problem in churches today, right? Sometimes we think that those first Christians were just pristine, right? And they just had it all together, and that's not true. They had the same nature that we did. They had the same interpersonal conflicts. They, they were exposed to false teachers that would show up in their assembly. They would have people that called themselves Christians and looked like Christians and then would leave and cause disruption. All of the same painful things that happen in our churches today happened in the first century. And so when, this is what I say, when Paul writes to the church in Rome about unity, the church that he's living at right then in Corinth also has a problem with unity. And it's very likely that the two churches are supposed to read each other's letters. And then finally in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1, the apostle says, "...by the humility and gentleness of Christ." So that same expression, it's through or by means of this, I'm making this appeal to you. So he could have just said, I, Paul, want you to do this. But it's really stronger if he speaks through or by means of the humility and gentleness of Christ. I, Paul, who am timid when face to face with you, but bold towards you, went away. So I put down there in a footnote, I don't always point out the footnotes, but I thought this one writer captured it really well. So this is footnote 83 in your notes. So Thielman says that it could be expanded to say something like this. God's pity expressed in the gospel, Paul has just described in the previous section, provides the basis for the appeal, fueling it, and sending it forward. Fueling it and sending it forward. So why, why should we do this, this? Why should we offer ourselves as a sacrifice? And we'll try to unpack what that looks like. Well, we should do that in view, as the NIV puts it, of everything Christ has first on us, for us. It's never going to be the basis for God's mercy. It's not the reason why he had mercy. His mercy came first. And it's not something that we can ever repay. You know, it's not... 
he scratched our back, so we're going to scratch his back. It, it can't be that. That's a very pagan concept. But it's always going to be fueled by the fact that God loved us first, and he demonstrated that love in the ultimate way by sending his son for us. All right, so what about mercy? He uses an unusual word, so second bullet point there. So just in case you're comparing with other English translations, you will notice that sometimes it's plural. That would be a more you know, wooden or real exact translation. But Paul probably picks this word because he has an equivalent word that he knows from the Old Testament for God's mercy, and that word is always plural. So that's probably why he chooses the plural form here, but it would be appropriately translated as a singular in English, okay? We just have that in language. Sometimes we talk about a thing in a plural sense or vice versa, but he's thinking of God's mercy here as a package. Not one specific thing that God has done for us, but everything all together, which if you tried to tie them together, are all benefits that we receive through Christ. So I just listed out some of the, the bullet points so we could walk through them together just to review what we've talked about in the earlier chapters. So that first little subpoint, God found us when we were worshiping the creation instead of the creator and rightly deserving of his wrath. That's what he said in the opening chapter. We were completely unable to make ourselves right before God by keeping his just requirements. So he, as an impartial judge, would have been right to condemn us all to eternal death. That was chapter 2 going into chapter 3. However, and we're so thankful for the however, the however, right? God sent his son to be the sacrifice for our sins. And we're declared right with God when we trust in his son. That was chapter 3 into chapter 4. Not only have we been declared right but we've also been given the Spirit. And neither death, sin, nor the law will be an obstacle to our future glorification. That was chapters 5 through 8 that we spent so much time on. So remember, it's not just that we were justified, we've also been sanctified. That began with our regeneration when we were made new, new people, new birth. We were reborn, and it will be finally finished when Jesus Christ glorifies us. We who are trusting in Christ have been made new and will be forever in Christ's perfect kingdom, and nothing will separate us from him. And then finally, this is the last section we looked at, God's dealings with the people of Israel further illustrate that we who have been rescued from God's wrath have only been saved as a result of his mercy. Remember, he hardens those he wills to harden, and he shows mercy on those he shows mercy. And it's not dependent on anything that we have done, right? And he did it this way so that he may have mercy on them all. That's what he said in chapter 11, verse 31. God would have been just to leave us as objects of his wrath, but instead he made us objects of his mercy. And this isn't a new thing, okay? So just the fact that Paul uses this plural form, probably because he's thinking of the Old Testament, that's just one small illustration of the fact that God has always been merciful in saving sinners. You know, we have to be real careful when we think about believers in the Old Testament. They weren't saved in a different way than we were. It was always by God's grace on the basis of what Jesus Christ was going to accomplish. 
And so sinners like Ruth and Hannah and David and Samuel, they also received the mercies of God. Well, what does he mean by bodies then? So what, what does it mean to offer your body as a living sacrifice? Well, I think it's just his way of referring to the whole person. So it's a, it's a figure of speech. The technical term is it's a synecdoche. You, you refer to a part in order to refer to the whole. Okay? It'd be like our English expression, he gave his hand in marriage, right? So if the bride showed up at the wedding and there was just a box with the groom's hand, it'd be creepy and that wouldn't be what she had in mind, right? So to give your hand in marriage means you give your whole in marriage, right? The part represents the whole. So when Paul says body, he's not just thinking of the physical things that we can do with our bodies, and then God doesn't care about our inward spirit, our thoughts, our affections. He wants all of us. Remember, the great commandment is what? We're supposed to love the Lord our God with our whole being, right? No matter how you parse out the adjectives there or the parts, it's our, it's our whole being. All right, then let's talk about that word offer. What does it mean to offer? This is an important verse. I probably should have mentioned this earlier, but if you go back to uh, page 64 there, and I point out another footnote. So this is a pretty deep and important set of verses, verses 1 and 2. So if you want to go deeper on this subject, I have a journal article there that I can re- recommend. So Dr. Combs, my own New Testament professor and one of your former professors or teachers here, right? So someone we know well, he's got a great article on the subject. So just about every little word or phrase in these two verses has been debated and talked about deeply because they're so important to our view of sanctification. Uh, One of the issues is, well, what does Paul mean by offering yourself? So there was an older view that you may have heard of it before. I especially heard it as a young boy hearing preaching growing up. It it seemed to be fairly common. It perhaps is, is starting to die out as I get older. But the, the view would say that offering is a one-time event. It's a once-for-all thing. And so sometimes it was associated with like your dedication. You would get saved at one point. This is where you would be born again. You would come to Christ. But at a later point, you had to dedicate yourself. And sometimes there was a big push to do that, like with an altar call or at like a camp meeting or something to that effect. And sometimes it would be based on this verse. They would say, after all, Paul asked you to offer yourself, and they would try to emphasize the fact that his choice of a verb here was a one-time event. And as I say there, though, as you flip the page over to page 66, we we now know, and I think we've known for a long time, that that's a misconception of how that Greek verb works. Verbs, any word really, only means something because of the friends around it, right? If I said you should stop, right, you have no idea what I mean by that, right? There's not enough words around there. If I say you should stop the car, that probably has more of a one-time feel to it, right? I just mean stop the car. It doesn't have any implications for down the road. But let's just say hypothetically I say to someone you should stop smoking, Well, because of those words around there, you know that I mean this is like going to be an ongoing, regular thing in their life, okay? So it's not the word stop by itself, 
that means whether it's one time or many times, it's its friends, it's the other words in its context. And I think it's pretty clear, based on the other words in the context, that Paul does not mean we offer ourselves one time and then we're done. Our whole life, between now and I would assume into eternity, he intends us to be offering ourselves, using our whole bodies, our whole self, as an expression of thanks to our Lord for what he's done for us. So then he describes this sacrifice. He does it with three words, the next bullet point. He calls it, first of all, living, holy, acceptable, or pleasing. So that last one, you know, it's been translated a couple different ways. So I think everyone agrees it's living, holy, and then it's either acceptable or pleasing, which if you think about it, that those are synonyms, right? Because acceptable to God would also be pleasing to God. So that's just two ways of translating the same word. So first of all, the sacrifice consists of a living person's actions, thoughts, and affections, and not in the death of an animal. So that would be our first clue, I think, that Paul is thinking of something ongoing. It's a living sacrifice, right? A lamb, a, a bull, if you're a poor, a dove, those animals could only be sacrificed once. It's, very, it's a very final thing but not so with us as living sacrifices. We can go on in a progressive, ongoing sense, offer ourselves as living sacrifice. Second, the believer offering himself as a sacrifice is set apart for God's service as certain people and objects were holy or set apart for God's service in the Old Testament. So that's the the fundamental meaning of holy. It means to be set apart. We've, we've talked about this before in the class. You, you could have certain dishes or things in your house that you don't use every day. You just get them out when the company comes out or on special occasions. So they're set apart for specific uses. That what, that's what it means to be holy. God is holy in the sense that he's set apart from creation. There's ultimately only two categories of things in this world. There's God and then there's everything else. God is completely holy. He's unique. That would be another adjective for it. He's set apart. But we're supposed to be set apart. There's, there's unique things that we are supposed to do as Christians, unique functions, uh, unique contributions that we can make in service to God. So like the vessels were holy and set apart in the temple, we as a living sacrifice can be holy and set apart in our expression of thanks to our God. And finally, third, this is a sacrifice that pleases God and is accepted by Him. It is what He has asked for instead of being something that we have decided to offer on our own, which is always the problem, right? It's been a problem going all the way back to Israel's original temple worship. Instead of just doing what God has asked us to do as a means of sacrifice, we have those pagan tendencies inside of us that think, well, I'll just think about what I want to do, right? So we can think about this at Christmas time, right? We all know that the worst kind of Christmas present that you could give someone would just be you thinking about what you would like and then transferring that on to someone else, right? The best kind of Christmas present is to put yourself in their shoes and think, what would that person like to receive, right? So to give something to God, we shouldn't be thinking about what we would like to give to God, what we think He would like. He's actually told us what He wants. So it would be acceptable or pleasing as a gift if we actually put ourselves in his viewpoint 
and did what he had asked of us and what he said he wanted. Those are the three that are real obvious, but then there's a, there's a final one at the end of verse 1. So look at it there. It says, this is your true and proper worship. So this is one place where the, the translations do differ on the language quite a bit. So one of the tricky things about translating the Bible is that we don't have a dictionary from their time period. It would have been really nice if someone living back then had just created a dictionary and we had it, and then we could just look up all their words. But what we have to do instead is kind of retroactively make the dictionaries. We have to read all of their stuff and figure out how they used words, and then we create dictionaries. Most of the time that works really well. It is tricky, though, if they don't use the word very often. If they only use it a couple times, you don't have a lot of data to sort through and figure out. And we can figure that out on our own, right? Because we've been given lots of tools for reading our Bibles. We can buy printed English Bibles that have three or four columns. You can have a computer program open with multiple translations. There's probably many of us in the room that have 10, 12 Bible translations available to us on our phone, right? So we have lots of tools for reading the Bible that Christians in previous centuries didn't have. We should be thankful for that, right? And we should use those. And when we're using those, and you see that the same word is translated multiple different times, it's a, or ways, it's a clue to us that it's probably a tricky word. And that's true. This word here only occurs two times in the New Testament. It occurs here, and then it occurs in 1 Peter when he's talking about the milk of the word. He's referring to the word as milk, and he uses the same adjective. So the NIV has true and proper. The CSB has just true. The NASB has spiritual, and uh, its margins, a couple translations, have rational. The King James, some of us had this memorized, maybe way back in an Awana class or something. You might have had this verse memorized. It was your reasonable service. And after all the study, I, I'm back to, I think the King James actually had it pretty well here, right? It, probably reasonable was a pretty good translation, which is the same thing as the NIV's proper. The, prop, the NIV is just... They're trying to be real thorough and just cover all their bases. So they just threw in two words instead of one, right? So they're being thorough. But it's proper or reasonable. It's the reasonable thing for us to do. Worshiping, worshiping idols, whether that's a little idol or an image, or whether it's just a thing that we love more than God, that isn't reasonable, right? I've been reading through the book of Ezekiel recently. Some of those passages in the prophets are kind of hard to read, aren't they? They're pretty, they're pretty dreary. They're pretty gloomy. Uh, but one of the powerful things about them is the imagery tends to capture our attention, right? A little bit better than just if they had propositions. One of the things that the prophet Ezekiel says, God's saying it through him to the people, is that someday they'll be punished, and he has this vivid picture of their bodies being strewn out on the ground in front of their idols. So what's he saying there? You're going to have these idols that you loved and that you worshipped, and they're just going to be sitting there doing absolutely nothing while your bodies are strewn out in front of them. The point there is that the idols are worthless. The idols don't deserve our worship, right? To worship things other than God isn't reasonable. It's not what we were created to do, and it's going to fail us in the end. But not so with our God, right? If you offer yourself as a living, 
holy, acceptable sacrifice to God, it's the reasonable thing to do. It's the right thing to do. It'll actually fit with the way you were created to be. That's what I think Paul is saying here in this expression. So it's a, it's a tough little word to translate. That was just kind of an FYI in case you were wondering why it differs. But there are enough places in other Greek writings outside the New Testament that I think we can figure out what Paul means here. All right, we'll go then to verse 2, going back here to our slide. So how would we do this? How would you carry out this sacrifice? Paul begins to explain that in verse 2. The believer offers himself as a sacrifice to God, both negatively and positively. So negatively, you do it by not being conformed to the pattern of this world, and positively by being transformed by the renewing of your mind. So transformation is the goal, and renewal of the mind is the means. So what would it look like for you and I to offer ourselves? Well, negatively, it would mean that we can't just keep on being conformed to the patterns of this world, which would be our default position unless we do something to stop that. So apart from God's work of sanctification, a work that we responsibly participate in, kind of our default position, if we just start coasting through life, it's that we will be squeezed into the world's mold. We will start thinking the way it thinks. All right, If the whole world was like a price is right game, we would put the price tags on the world that the world tells us those things have value. But the God who we serve would actually say that some of the things that this world says are valuable are actually junk, and some of the things that the world says is junk is actually valuable, right? So it's not just going to be our outward actions, although that's included, but it's also going to be our loves and our values. Okay, We have to make sure, one, we're not being conformed to the pattern of this world, and number two, that we're being positively transformed. So how would we be transformed? Well, the means would be to have your mind renewed. All right? Uh, let's go on to page 67. So I just at the top of the page, I think probably, and you guys know this, you're, you're, at a, you're at a good church, you hear good preaching all the time. So when he says world, he's not thinking like planet. He's not thinking like the thing we walk on. He's talking about our, our system, this, this age, right? This evil age that we live in that's passing away. So what is this renewal? So I'll pick it up there, kind of the third line, fourth line of that uh, paragraph. This is a renewal that began at our conversion. Uh, Titus chapter 3, verse 5, talks about the washing of regeneration. So that's when it started. It continues through our whole life. I'll give you a couple other passages there in Paul where he talks about the ongoing aspect of it. And it will be completed by the transformation that occurs when Christ returns for us. So sometimes we talk about our sanctification having three aspects to it. I think the first one sometimes is incorrectly described as a positional sanctification. I don't think that's the best way to say it, because that seems to imply that nothing really happens to us. We just get a new status. But that's not what the washing of regeneration sounds like to me. That's not what the dying of the old man that Paul talked about. Remember when we were in Romans chapter 6, how we were crucified with Christ? No, there's actually something that happened to us. We, 
we actually were changed at our regeneration. So there was a uh, initial sanctification where we were born again, but we continue to grow and progress, and it will be finally finalized at our final resurrection when we're, we're glorified. Um, let's go down to the, the next bullet point. So what would be the purpose for this? So that was how can this be done? What is the purpose? Why is, why is God making us new? Why is he reprogramming our mind, so to speak? He's doing this so that the believer now will be able to know what is good, pleasing, and perfect. So let me just read a little bit of that paragraph. So as our minds are gradually renewed, we'll become increasingly, increasingly able to discern what would be pleasing to our God. However, since this process is never complete, God has also left us some, and here I'm quoting from Moo, some revealed objective standards against which to measure our behavior, some of which is found in chapter 12, verses 3 and following. So he, he's going to make this general statement. You need to be renewing your mind, reprogramming your mind, so to speak. Well, why should I do that, Paul? You should do it for the purpose of you then being able to discern what would be good and pleasing to God. Well, I, know, I think there's a tension for some of us. That seems a little fuzzy, right? Well, well, how will I know if I'm doing the things that are good and pleasing to God? Well, he's going to give us, when we come back from the break, some real specific examples of what that would look like. But it kind of has like, I don't know if this is the best analogy, because I'm, I'm picking this right off the spot here. So that's always dangerous. It's almost like a snowball effect to it, right? The more, the more we obey these commandments the more we're being changed to become like Christ, the more we will be able to know which commandments or which things we should be doing in the first place, right? And there will be times in our life where we will get off track, right? We will we'll need a course correction. There'll be things that we'll start doing that aren't good and pleasing. Why do we do that? Because this reprogramming of our mind, this transformation isn't complete. It's imperfect. So then we'll always need either our own reading of Scripture or a Christian brother or sister over a cup of coffee, or our pastor on Sunday. However, the Word is communicated to us. We're going to need the Word of God as the objective standard to sometimes correct us. But then as we go back to that correction, and we start doing the things that Christ has actually told us to do, the transformation continues so that we progressively are becoming more like Christ and more able to discern his will, and what would be pleasing to him. All right, let's stop there for a quick break. We'll do our 10-minute break. If you have some questions, we'll start with questions when we come back. Up on uh, page 67, we're getting ready here in a moment to start looking at verse 3. I know we spent a good bit, a good bit of time on two verses, but they were, they were important verses. Uh, any any questions that you guys had? Anything you were deeply pondering over the Thanksgiving break that you wanted to talk about? Or any questions from what we just discussed? Any questions from the reading that you've been doing? If not, we can jump back in, but we are we're on schedule, so we've got time for questions if you've got a question. She's 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 not. She's one of my best people at answer, asking questions. So.
I miss having her here. <laughs> <laughs> Tell her that. Yeah. Yeah. All right, let's. Uh, yes, man. Uh huh. Yes. Yeah. No, that's fine. I, let's let's all look there. Yeah. So I think there, it, you know, it would still have the idea of it's a unique kind of of greeting or kiss in this instance. So there were there. In their culture, they would have greeted each other probably with kisses more often than we do. It's not, as a general rule, something we run around and start doing in our culture, right? Um, but you can go to other places. So I, I grew up in, in Latin America, and it was pretty common. It, you go to a church service, and people would give each other little air kisses, or you know, in some cultures they do that. They just kind of touch cheeks. Uh, but Paul here, he probably also is insinuating that it's not supposed to have any kind of immoral innuendos or attachments to it. So it's a unique kind of greeting, a special kind of greeting, a greeting that's appropriate for believers who genuinely love each other and think of each other as spiritual family. So we would have to decide what would that look like in our culture? You know, would that look like handshakes or during the pandemic, you know, a fist bump <laughs> or just a friendly conversation that you generally show that you care and you and maybe you're a good listener. I mean, there's all kinds of ways that you could greet a Christian at church and show that you love them. Um, in their culture, it was with a, a unique type of kiss, a greeting. So, so I think holy, you know, so holy sometimes it has the idea of separate from sin. But that's a subcategory of just being separate in general. So it, in, in general, it means you're separate or you're unique in every way. But one of the ways that we're separate or unique as Christians is that we're supposed to be separate from sin, right? It's a good question. Any other questions? So when we interpret the Bible, we always have to first go back to their world and hear it the way they would have heard it. So that's why we have to study their language, their culture. That's going to come up in just a second when Paul talks about burning coals on people's heads, because you know, we're going to have to decide, well, what does that mean in their world? So we have to be time travelers. We've got to go back to their world and hear it in their world. But then once we realize what it means for them, then we've got to cross the bridge and go back to our world and think about, okay, how could we apply the timeless principle that's there in our time and place. And, and sometimes it's easy. Sometimes it's just, you know, very one for one. But like with the greeting with a holy kiss or um, when Paul tells the, the women in Corinth that they're supposed to wear, wear head coverings, you know, there's going to be certain things that are culturally conditioned that we're going to have to modify when we come back to our world. But the the ones that require a lot of modification, the commands like that in the, the epistles, they're, they're actually pretty rare. They're, 
there's not that many of them. We've, we've named two of the big ones right there. All right, chapter 12, verse 3, Paul's going to start out this new paragraph with this kind of central command, this, this summary command, and then he's going to uh, kind of flesh it out or unpack it as he progresses. And so I, it's important enough, I thought we should just put it up here on the screen so we can all see it. He says, for, for by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. This is kind of interesting, right? Paul's getting ready to have this big section where he's describing what the gospel will look like as it's lived out in a church. And the very first thing that he starts talking about is the way we think about ourselves, which is, is revealing, right? Because one of our core problems that's common to all of us as fallen humans is that we think too highly of ourselves, right? Actually, sometimes when we try to put ourselves down, we're doing that as a mechanism because we actually inwardly think too highly of ourselves. We, we can actually fool ourselves into looking like we're being humble when we're actually being proud. And Paul uses a play on words. He actually uses the word for thinking four times in this one verse. It's kind of hard for us to bring that out in English, so we only see two of them. But he's really driving home this, this point here. So... Uh, Moo kind of tries to, his hand at a translation that brings this out. He says, we are not to think too highly of ourselves, but to think in a realistic thinking kind of way. So that was his way of trying to bring out the play on words. So all of these exhortations, I think, that follow in chapter 12 and verse 3, all the way down to chapter 13, verse 14, they're united by the theme of believers loving one another. So what, it, what does it mean to love somebody? Well, to really love someone, it means that you want what's best for them, that you're putting their needs first, okay? Well, you can't do that if you're thinking too highly of yourself. So they are related. We can't be loving ourself and loving others at the same time. Those are actually mutually exclusive. So this opening paragraph addresses a significant obstacle to brotherly, or you could say sisterly love, which is pride. So then he goes on to say, just as a human body has different parts with different functions, God has given different gifts with corresponding responsibilities to different members of the body of Christ, and these gifts must be used. So let me just read verses 4 through 8 for us. He says, For just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophecy, prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it isn't to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. So we have both diversity and we have unity. We're, we're all together. We're a family. We're all in one body, right? We're supposed to love each other and not think too highly of ourselves. 
but at the same time, that doesn't all mean that we're exactly the same. We can be different and still be united, right? We can, we can have different roles, different gifts, different things that we cheerfully do to build up the body, but at the same time, we should all love each other. Um, I'm going to read just a little bit at the bottom of that page. I say we should not be proud, but we should not despair or think too lowly of ourselves. Instead, we should accept that we each have been given a role to carry out in building Christ's church and have been empowered by the Spirit to carry out this role. So when Jesus was here on earth, one of the things that he promised is that when he ascended, that he would have the right to give the Spirit. I don't think that means the Spirit as in regeneration, because I think the Spirit in that sense was always given to believers, even the Old Testament. But I think the Spirit has been given to us in the sense that we are now being used to build the church. So by analogy, just like the tabernacle in the wilderness, maybe you were reading through the, the tabernacle account in your Old Testament reading. It's very detailed, very intricate. You almost need a chart to keep track of all the different furniture and things that are being built. But there were men that were given a special empowerment of the Spirit so that they could build that tabernacle exactly the way God wanted it to be. By analogy, in this time period that we live in, this temple that we call the church, this group of people that's being built all over the world for Jesus Christ, is being built by workers, you and I, who are empowered by the Spirit. We, we were given gifts. We were given an enablement, things that we now want to do and can do that before we were Christians, we didn't want to do them and we actually couldn't do them. We've been given both the desire and the ability. And it looks like all kinds of different things. We're not all doing the same thing. But here he specifically refers to people who were giving prophecy, people who were serving, people who were teaching, people who were encouraging, people who are giving, people who are leading, and people who are doing mercy. I don't think we're supposed to like do a test and figure out our one thing, and then that means you can't do the rest of them. For example, I think we're all supposed to be encouraging. I think we're all supposed to be giving, right? So it's not like an either-or type of thing. We're all supposed to be doing a variety of things. I think we find out what we're supposed to be doing by doing. So God, in his providence, as we serve, he shows us how we're best used in service. And then he shows us also how he's equipped us to serve. I think the one that gets the most uh, controversy, or at least I get the questions about it, is the, is the prophecy, right? Because that's still controversial in our day. So when we read this, is this specific to Paul and his time, or is this something that's supposed to be continuing uh, ongoing? Well, I think... Paul himself answers the question for us. So there was prophecy going on in the early church. I think that's pretty clear. Uh, there was two kinds of prophecy going on, though. There was genuine prophets who would speak on behalf of God because they didn't have a complete canon. So they would stand up in the assembly and give prophecy. But then there's also false prophets who would occasionally stand up. And the people of the church were supposed to discern which was true and which was false. They seemed to have been given enablement for that, and they also could test them based on the scriptures that they've already been given. So this is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, 29. He says, two or three prophets should speak. So it's pretty clear that 
people were standing up and speaking, and the others should weigh carefully what is said. So they were supposed to evaluate or make sure that what was said was actually true. But also, Paul in that same letter, I think, indicates that this won't continue forever. So like the other gifts that do continue, he does specifically refer to prophecy as something that would stop. He says prophecy will cease. He also talks about the gift of tongues as being stilled and knowledge is passing away. So I don't want to go too deep into the weeds, but I think if you look at the whole context of what Paul says in that passage, that he identifies the completion of the canon. So God would have a time period where he was laying the foundation of his church. So Paul uses that metaphor in Ephesians. There's a foundation to the church that has to be laid. The foundation was the apostles and the prophets. That's in the book of Ephesians. But once that foundation was laid, the rest of us as workers, we could build the rest of the building. So the foundation layers, their work was complete. There was no longer need for prophecy because I think now we've been given everything that we need for life and godliness. It's in our complete uh, Old Testament and New Testament canon. So that's, that's my real quick short version. If you want more details, I gave you a couple sources down there in the, in the footnotes. So what about this phrase there, in accordance with your faith, all right? So um, what does he mean by that? And uh, I lost my place. Yeah, it's in verse 6. So he says, we have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. It's difficult to understand. There's various interpretations that have been proposed. I think, however, in this context, faith likely refers to the prophet's confidence that he is, in fact, speaking on behalf of God. So, as one writer put it, the prophet should not go beyond the insight God has given, but should modestly stay within these bounds when speaking a word of edification or direction. So, this goes back to that first example. That's one of the reasons I put it up there. If there's people in the church who are standing up claiming to be giving prophecies from God, one of the checks against that would be their own confidence of whether or not that's actually what God had told them to do. If God actually hadn't told you to say this, you shouldn't say that, right? That's in Paul's context. Well, I do think that has an application for us today, right? If we're going to teach, if we're going to encourage, if someone calls you up and says, hey, I want to meet on Friday for lunch, and you know, I've got an issue, and you're going, to, you're going to be talking to them, you know, you're going to be sharing scripture, maybe directly or through principles, I think we, we have to put guards on ourselves, right? Some of us are more prone to be talkative than others, right? Some of us, you know, personalities are different. But I think we all have a tendency sometimes to say more than we should, to, to dive into our own opinions, our own thinking on stuff. We have to make sure that what we say is according to our own confidence that this is what God has said. This is what God has said, and I'm just repeating his truth to this person. All right? So I think that would be an application here of what Paul is saying, even though the gift of prophecy itself, I think, was only foundational for the church, and it's passed away. Any questions there on that first paragraph? All right, well, let's go to the second paragraph then. So the second paragraph, verses 9 through 21, or at least the second little section here that we're going to discuss, starts out with this simple phrase, 
love must be sincere in verse 9. That's a heading for this section. And then I think what follows is a description of what sincere love would actually look like. So all of these other things that he's going to describe, being devoted, honoring, joyful, sharing, these are all descriptions. But from the get-go, even in this summary, he describes it in two ways. So what is sincere love? Well, negatively, it would be hating what is evil, and positively, it would be clinging to what is good. All right. Remember, love is wanting the best for someone else, even at your own expense. It's wanting someone else's best above your own best, right? And what would that actually look like? It would be hating what is evil, especially in this context in a relationship to another person, and clinging to what is good. All right, so let me read that section for us. I'll go through uh, the end of the chapter. We'll just read it straight through. He says, Love must be sincere, hate what is evil, cling to what is good, be devoted to one another in love, honor one another above yourselves, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord, be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer, Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. It's a pretty easy passage for the most part to understand. We're going to have to tackle the burning coal part, right? But even though it's easy, it's hard to apply, right? That's the trick with this passage. Not too many twists and turns from an interpretative standpoint. Uh, but the application will be something that we'll all continue to struggle with, right? And we'll have to rely on God's grace. A couple things to note. I think this genuine love, that's the summary statement, it seems to be not directly tied to believers. Did you pick up on that as I went through there? There's enough references, I think, to unbelievers, even to people who hate you or persecute you, to make me think that Paul's here thinking about the love that we should have for all people, right? There are, there are special demonstrations of love that are unique for our fellow believers. For example, Paul will talk about helping all people, but especially those who are of the household of faith. So sometimes when we're prioritizing how we can use our money in a charitable way or how we can use our time to help people, we'll prioritize our spiritual family but that doesn't mean we don't love everyone. We have an obligation to love all people, including our enemies. And as soon as you hear that we're supposed to love those who hate us and persecute us, who does that sound like is talking? Who's, whose words does that sound like? 
It's Jesus' words, right? This would be one of several places, I think, in the apostles where it's pretty clear that they're not just creating this afresh, but they're actually, they know the tradition that came from Jesus. So even if the Gospels themselves, the four Gospels, hadn't been written yet, which is probably true, they hadn't been written yet, the oral teaching that made the backbone of those Gospels was already circulating. Peter, John, the other apostles were already out preaching. And Paul had heard this, and they're repeating Jesus' words. Okay? So I give you a couple examples. Matthew chapter 5, verse 44. Luke chapter 6, verses 27 and 28. All right, so some of these instructions, the third bullet point, have to do with our relationship with God. So we're supposed to be characterized by hope, or joy and hope, and be faithful in prayer. Many of the instructions, though, have to do with our relationship with fellow believers. So I just put out some bullet points again. We're supposed to share with those who have needs. We're supposed to be hospitable. Um, that probably in their time period, you know, it, it would have entailed uh, opening your home up to those who were traveling or needed a place to stay. That would have been a very practical thing to do, helpful, uh, because of the, the you know, lack of a, a good inn system or a motel system. But there's other ways that we could be hospitable. We can be hospitable with our time. We can be hospitable with our resources. So it would definitely include having people physically into our home, but I don't think it's limited to that, right? We're just supposed to use what's ours to help others. We're supposed to live in harmony with one another. We're supposed to be humble, and we're supposed to associate with people of low social positions, which again sounds very similar to things that not only Jesus said, but also things that Jesus showed by example, right? That some of us went through the Gospel of Matthew together not too long ago, and one of the common things in the Gospels is that he surprises his enemies by the type of people he's willing to associate with because he associates with people that the world would not put high value prices on. But Jesus, remember, isn't playing the same pricing game that the world is playing. He puts higher values on things that they put lower values on. So I think the one portion of this section that's probably hardest to understand is this reference to burning coals on the head of our enemy in verse 20. Now, most of us in our Bibles, we probably have some way of showing us that he's quoted from the, from the Old Testament. So he's actually quoted two times. So if you look at the very end of verse 19, it is mine to avenge, I will repay. That's from Deuteronomy 32, which if you've been tracking with Paul's different citations. He, he really does like to go back to Deuteronomy. Those last few chapters that talk about Israel's future restoration are very important. In Deuteronomy 32, uh, God is specifically talking about how he will avenge his people Israel. So even though they are underneath his curses and they're suffering because of it, those who are the instruments of his judgment will also the, them themselves be judged and he will avenge them. But he now, here Paul is applying it to all of us as Christians. We also are benefiting from the fact that God cares about us. He thinks about us as his children. And when we are attacked and persecuted, he says in Matthew chapter 18 that for our persecutors, it would have been better for them if they had taken the large millstone of a donkey and been cast into the sea. All right? 
Sometimes it doesn't happen that often in our culture, right? But we will suffer for the name of Christ, sometimes even in a physical sense. But we can take comfort in the fact that there's a God in heaven who sees that. And he will hold them accountable, so it's not our job to seek revenge. But then the next quotation is from Proverbs chapter 25, verses 21 through 22. So it's, it's not just in Paul that we have to figure out the burning coals, but it went all the way back to Proverbs. So we got four different options here. I'll, I'll run through these quickly, or at least three options and then a conclusion. So the first, some have seen here a reference to an ancient Egyptian reconciliation ritual. So the idea here is that in ancient Egypt, people, if they were trying to reconcile, would literally put burning coals. I'm assuming that they'd be in like a pan or some kind of dish, and that this is the image that Paul's referring to. But I say there, the evidence for this ritual is slim, and Paul was likely not aware of this ritual. So even if it really did exist, it seems very unlikely that Paul even would have known about it. Even if this ritual stood behind the original proverb, and that's debatable, it's unlikely that Paul would have quoted a proverb without understanding its meaning. Number two, usually words like coals and fire refer to God's judgment. Right? That's pretty common imagery. When we, we think about fire or coals or something burning, That usually that picture would conjure up something negative. We would think that God is probably angry or something negative is happening. So then the meaning here would be that our enemy, if he does not repent, our acts of kindness will be the basis for their judgment. Paul then would be, quote, encouraging believers to leave the judgment of their enemy's evil deeds to God. So what the idea there would be that if we keep on doing good to our enemies, our persecutors, which we are supposed to, they will someday be judged. So we we can leave that in God's hands. And actually, our acts of kindness, which they did not reciprocate, will be the basis for him to judge them. That would be the idea, that we're we're actually giving them more basis for judgment. We're heaping coals on their head by continuing to act kind. Now, I know that raises some questions, right? So then there's been a third view. This is probably the majority view. So if you just wanted to run around and count noses among scholars, this is probably the one you'd find the most of, is that there they would say our kindness will lead our enemies to have burning shame and remorse for how they've treated us, leading hopefully to repentance. So this is a very different idea. This would be the idea that someone's being uh, persecuting you, they're being cruel to you, but you keep on loving them and showing kindness, which we're all clear we're supposed to do. And the idea is that you will eventually be the instrument that God uses to change their hearts. So you'll prick their conscience, you'll convict them, they'll realize that what they're doing is wrong. And so the coals, the fire, would be kind of a metaphor for shame, okay? That's the idea. All right, so a decision between those last two options, it's difficult. But based on the way words like coal and fire are typically used, I think the second option is most likely. So I'm not going to die on that hill, but if you ask me tonight, that's the one I think is most likely, number two. So in verse, in verse 19, Paul acknowledged that God would repay those who had wronged his children. 
Similarly, uh, Jesus, and here I'm quoting, Jesus could refrain from cursing his adversaries because he entrusted himself to God who judges righteously. So that would be 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23 that Shriner's quoting from. So when, when Jesus was standing there before Pilate, before Herod, before the Sanhedrin, and he knew that he was being judged unjustly, and he was going to get something that he did not deserve, he could leave that in God's hands, 1 Peter says, because he believed that God would judge them justly. So even though they were bad judges, God is a good judge, and he will take care of it in the end. And we, we as Christ's followers, can have the same disposition. So I, I'm going to go on to quote here, The sure realization that God will vindicate us frees us to love others and to do good to them, and even to pray that God will bless them and bring them to repentance. Believers will not chafe at my, any oppressor being brought to repentance because they trust the goodness and justice of God, knowing that he does all things well and that they themselves were deserving of wrath. So even if you take that second position, you, that still doesn't mean that we don't pray and hope for the repentance of even our persecutors, right? Imagine some of those people in the early church when they first met the man who's writing this letter, right? When he first showed up in their assembly there in Jerusalem and they realized who he was, right? He was one of those people who, if he had continued down that path, would have received burning coals. He would have received God's wrath, but instead God graciously appeared to him and turned him into one of his greatest servants. And God can do the same thing for anyone who's persecuting and oppressing us. The thing is, though, we'll never know for sure if he will. So we can't be purely motivated by the fact that God will save them because God won't save all of them. But either way, whether he saves them or whether he judges them, we can remind ourselves that apart from God's grace, we would be like them, right? We also would be objects of wrath. And whatever he does, he will be a good judge. He will be just, right? So um, this has good application for us, right? Because we never should be marked as vigilantes, as people who are looking for, to exact justice in this life, right? And we don't have to be. We're, we're free of that. We can worry about other things because we have a God in heaven who is a good judge. All right, then he transitions into... Uh, chapter 13. We actually only just have a few minutes, so this may be a good spot to, to break here shortly. Any, any quick questions about chapter 12? I just went through a bunch of verses really quick after going through two really slow. So anything I glossed over that you want to talk about? So in chapter 13, he is going to start discussing our relationship with, with government. You know, that's been kind of a hot topic in, in our country over the last couple of years, and I think even other places in the world. Again, remember at the beginning of the class, I reminded us that, you know, we sometimes think that uh, the early church was pristine, that they had it all together, that they didn't have the same problems that we, we did. That's not true. We, if we read the New Testament letters, we realize that they had a nature like us. Uh, they also faced difficulties from government, just like we face difficulties. In fact, maybe we could argue that some of their difficulties were more severe. 
One of the specific things that Paul refers to here is the responsibility that we have towards government to pay taxes. So he actually says that God, God has put government over us as God's servant. So when we're grudgingly paying our tax bill and we don't feel like doing it, we can be liberated by the fact that we're actually doing this as service to God, right? We're actually paying for one of God's servants. So if that makes you, you feel better about your tax bill, then that, that would be a proper motivation. That they, and that they are actually here for our good. Um, I know we could come up with exceptions to that, right? There's been times in human history where governments haven't done what's good. And the, the Christians in the first century uh, definitely saw that. Uh, I don't think we want to overplay it too much. Uh, sometimes you'll hear in preaching or teaching that, you know, this is Nero is the emperor when Paul writes this. And, you know, Nero's a madman. Nero ends up uh, having um, Paul executed, which is all true. I would just add as a caveat, it hasn't happened yet. So Nero seems to have taken a turn for the worse for a variety of reasons later in his rule. But Paul is living on the good side of his reign. So at this point, he is still operating fairly sanely. The Roman government does do a great good for the, the world, uh, tamps down crime, piracy. Paul probably travels more safely on roads because they're there. And they have a restraining influence on our human depravity. Uh, even the worst government is better than no government. We, we have to admit that. If, if we are left completely lawless without somebody over us who has a sword, we're capable of all kinds of wickedness. Right? So that, even when we get into the passage in a bit here on, on capital punishment, which is extremely controversial, uh, Paul's going to ground that back in Genesis chapter 9. He's going to actually say that they, as God's servants, have been given this specific role, and they're supposed to carry it out. Well, then I think one of the objections might be, but they do it unfairly sometimes, right? So capital punishment is sometimes critiqued uh, because it's not carried out uh, in, a, in a just manner, right? Uh, certain people seem to receive it more often than other people, all kinds of injustices that take place. Uh, but my response to that would be to point to the fact that that's always been the case right? Who's the ultimate example of someone who suffered unjustly at the hands of capital punishment? It's our Lord Jesus Christ, right? We just talked about that. First Peter refers to that. So he suffered an unjust verdict, but, and the apostles know that very well, but that never stops them from saying, but this, you know, is still what Genesis 9 told us the government was supposed to do. Why? Because the person who takes another human life has actually attacked the creator. They've attacked an image bearer, and if you attack an image bearer in any way, you've actually attacked God. And so um, God is right to use his servants to ex exact his judgment. So just to kind of wrap that up with what we're talking about in chapter 12, there is a, a final vengeance. I think that's what Deuteronomy 32 is talking about. There'll be a sense where we can leave God's uh, right to exact vengeance um, to the final day, to the final judgment. But there's also a sense where our, our governments today, they've been put in place by God, are his instruments in exacting justice and revenge or vengeance even in this world.
All right? So we'll, we'll pick that up in uh, chapter 13 when we come back. And uh, Lord willing, I'll see you next week.